This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. You're listening to the Indo Daily. Now's your chance to catch up on some of our most popular episodes of the year so far. Today on the Indo Daily, the rise and fall of the billionaire Mansfield dynasty. Jim Mansfield Jr. has been found not guilty of conspiring to falsely imprison and guilty of perverting the course of justice. It's the latest chapter in the remarkable saga of the Mansfield family, who once built a property empire worth 1.6 billion euros. There was the castle, there was the jacuzzi on the roof of Palmer Townhouse, there was a a red, shiny red Ferrari, the stretch Hummer that was kind of gone. There was always the, the nights of buying drinks for the entire room of people and then trips on a private jet to Marbella for his friends. I mean, they were meant to be very generous guys. And, you know, that was all. It's much more uh, low profile now. I'm Fionan Sheen. And today on the Indo Daily, I'm talking to Sunday independent writer Neve Horn and Irish independent journalist Robin Schiller about glamorous lifestyles, hotels and court cases. Neve Horn, the story of the Mansfield Empire, quite a, a dramatic rags to riches tale. Tell us about Jim Mansfield Sr. and how he made his fortune. Well, Jim Mansfield Sr. was kind of like one of Ireland's great rags to riches story. You know, he left school at 14. He was working in a quarry, literally breaking rocks. Um, He was a lorry driver. And then he ended his days living in this beautiful mansion in Dublin after building a property empire worth about one and a half billion euro by 2006. Now, your note, that's two years before the Celtic Tiger or the crash happened. And that's another story. But yeah, so he made a lot of his fortune selling off machinery left over from the Falklands War. A very smart guy and then put it into hotels and, and property and all the the, you know, the well-known names that we, you know, the, the, the Western Aerodrome, City West Hotel, there was Conference Centre out there. And so, I mean, he really was a success story, um, and but still very, very much uh, down to earth. You know, um, I, I went out and met him back in 2008, um, just when the, the crash uh, w- was happening and uh, just very affable uh, roast dinner. You know, the same roast dinner he has every day with his sons and uh, was more than happy to, you know, answer any question. He was very kind of open and transparent in the same way as I found his son, Jimmy Mansfield uh, Jr. Um, last year. And at at their height of their powers during the Celtic Tiger days, they were very much pillars of the establishment of society. The political parties were going out there for their audition and their dinner. There was high-profile GA dinners. There was often broadcasts uh, from RTE. And, and that was, it was very much that, that City West was seen to be a location to go to. 
very much. And I think they kind of reveled in that. You know, City City West Hotel basically allowed uh, Jim Mansfield Sr. to kind of flex his, his financial muscle. And it also afforded him kind of this status among our, Ireland's political elite. You know, year after year, he was playing host to the Ordesh for Fianna Fáil. Um, and then, you know, even if you go out there today, you know, the, the, the lobby leading into the banquet room of that hotel, it's all covered in photographs. People like in happier times, of course, people like uh, Taoiseach, Bertie O'Hearn and the like. So, I mean, he was very much a pillar of the community. But then also there was these rumours circling around about him back then, which I went out and chatted to him about. And like the one thing I'd note about him is there's very, very few people you can look in the eye and ask, is there, you know, is there, are they running a drugs business? You know, but he was happy to to take the questions. He was happy to sit sit, sit down and talk about it. You know, Um, he was very tried as much as possible to be open and transparent. And he just said they were all rumours. It was down to jealousy. Anyone with any uh, information or evidence who goes straight to the guards, he was very, you know, he was putting it up to people. So there was the two sides. Uh, there was the, 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 the empire that he had built, but there was also the rumours circulating. And then his sons were also involved in the business and... Jim Mansfield Jr., he was also known on kind of the the showbiz and gossip pages, I suppose, of the papers. There was a number of of, of models uh, who he, he was involved in relationships with over the years. Absolutely. Not just him, but he's, uh, he's, his younger brother, PJ, as well. Um, so uh, Jimmy Mansfield Jr., he would have dated uh, uh, Hazel O'Sullivan, who is now married to an English footballer. But um, Hazel... I remember I interviewed her once. She told me he had broken her heart. They were together for about three years. He was, when he was 40, she was 18 at the time. And she said, look, it's not about his flashy lifestyle or his money or whatever it is. It's the real deal. And she really fell head over heels, but it didn't last. Um, uh, He broke it off. And then he was linked to the late uh, model, Katie French. I don't need to, I'm sure, tell your listeners who who she is. It's well known. She she died in 2007 um, when she collapsed and she's out socialising. She was found to have cocaine in her system. But um, the weeks before she died, she'd been living in a Mansfield-owned apartment at City West. She'd been driving this 100 grand Range Rover, which had been lent to her by um, a car dealer dealer friend of Mansfield Jr., a guy called Lee Cullen. Um, But then when I met Jimmy Jr. last year and I asked him about the relationship, he said it was exaggerated. He said I wasn't dating her as such, um, uh, whatever that means. He said I I, I knew her through Andrea Roach, who's a model who was married to his brother PJ. And he said he was never even on his own with her. You know, I asked him directly if he had seen her take drugs at the time. He said no, uh, he wouldn't have had the relationship to even ask her was she taking drugs. And uh, but he said there was never really any relationship. He said it was exaggerated. And uh, he did he did joke though at the same time that he wouldn't have minded. So make of that what you will. And the the, the Mansfields. The, the, the epitome of, of Celtic Tiger spending and lifestyle as they were, what goes up though does come down and, and they too suffered from the, the crash of, of the, the Celtic Tiger. What happened to their, their lifestyle when the, when the crash came about? 
Well, that's it. I mean, are you, as you uh, and I both know, I suppose, Fiona, when uh, the rich hit uh, hard times, it's never as bad as if you and I hit hard times. You know, when I met Jimmy Jr. last year, he was still wearing his gold Rolex watch. You know, he was still driving a nice car. He was out in uh, in Finstown House, which was still owned by the family. So their idea of hard times is, I think, very different to a lot of people. But, you know, there was the castle, there was the jacuzzi on the roof of Palmer Town House. There was a, a red, shiny red Ferrari, the stretch homer that was kind of gone. There was always the the nights of buying drinks for the entire room of people and then trips on a private jet to Marbella for his friends. I mean, they were meant to be very generous guys. And, you know, that was all. It's much more uh, low profile now. I mean, when I met them last year, they seemed to be doing still very, very well, but not as flashy by any means. And if whatever they had, they weren't going to be flaunting it in, in the way that they used to. And yet at the same time in, in, in recent years, you've, you also spoke to Jim Jr. about some brushes with the law. What did he have to say about that? That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was adamant. Look, that he's going to, that he has done nothing wrong. He's, you know, um, he said uh, that um, he, he did have some brushes with the law and he, they're well known. I mean, he said, you know, he was, he was arrested first of all in 2009. Uh, he was caught driving a Porsche when he was over the limit and he was on a night out with guests and a man who reporters described at the time as a Saudi dignitary. And then uh, about a year later, he was convicted for a second time of drink driving. He was fined about 2000 then and then banned for two years from driving. And then there was other cases then that switched raids, more than a few eyebrows, which, you know, uh, one where he claimed he didn't understand deals of uh, details of a multi-million euro development loan um, provided to him by AIB. You know, uh, he's the director of 23 companies now at this stage, remember, and he had told the court He'd never read a book or a newspaper and um, and an, he had an educational psychologist report that said he had the reading ability of a seven-year-old. Uh, I do remember when I met him last year, he he's, a, he's by, I mean, whatever about his reading abilities, he's a very smart guy uh, and very streetwise. That's the way I put it, but but very smart. I wouldn't put him down as, um, you know, I wouldn't write him off at all in, the, in that respect. But yes, he did have several brushes in the law, but I mean, he was defiant about it. Like his father years before, he was very adamant he was going to clear his name. He's very adamant that, um, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong. You know, he's allowed to own, for example, um, uh, shotguns. He used it for hunting, you know, and he he's he's just adamant he's never going to spend time in jail. In fact, he said to me, I don't even think about it. I'm, I'm lucky that I have that kind of mental the, my mental makeup doesn't even let me go there. I don't worry about things that haven't happened yet. I did expect to find him uh, worried or kind of like stressing over it. Or, You know, I suppose if you and I or any of kind of average person was up in court in the same way as Jimmy Mansfield is going to be, there would almost be a kind of, um, there, there'd almost be a fret or a worry or I don't know if there's shame or embarrassment. Definitely not. I mean, I couldn't even turn on the dictaphone and he was saying, I think this is the best effing story in the world, you know? So it's not something that I think is is um, whatever about his brushes in the law. They're not, it's not something that's stressing him out. And it's, uh, he, he certainly feels that he's going to clear his name. Robin Schiller, central to this case is a man called Martin Byrne. Who is he and what was his relationship with the Mansfields? Well, Martin Byrne's now a protected state witness, but beforehand he worked as a security advisor for Jim Mansfield Sr. Now, it's a role he would have taken up in 2005 after meeting him at a show expo at the City West Hotel, which they used to own. 
And in his evidence in the court, Martin Byrne explained that while he predominantly worked for Jim Mansfield Sr., it was very much an open family and he would have worked for other members of the family. And as a result, he also would have carried out security work for Jim Mansfield Jr. Now, following the death of Jim Sr. in 2014, he would have become more involved with Jim Mansfield Jr. and would have also become a sort of advisor in a way as well and helped him with different negotiations. And that's, I suppose, how Martin Byrne come to be uh, very close or work closely with Jim Mansfield Jr. How did we arrive at a point where there was an effort made here to evict him from the home in which he was living in? Well, the backstory kind of starts with the uh, the economic collapse and Jim Mansfield Senior's empire effectively going into receivership. Now, I suppose not to get into the complex intricacies of it, but I suppose there were three properties in particular that the Mansfield family wanted back. There were the Finstown House Hotel, Sagart Lodge, where a number of properties were located, and a field known as Paddy Riley's Field, which was worth about 30 million back in the boom days. And Martin Byrne's evidence was that, you know, when Jim Mansfield Sr. was still alive, he made a fair deal or a negotiation with a former business partner that they would effectively buy these back on behalf of the Mansfields and then sell them on to them. But as Jim Sr.'s health deteriorated and he sadly passed away in 2014, his eldest son, Jim Jr., began taking over negotiations. And from the evidence of Martin Byrne, you know, there was missed payments, there was reneging on certain deals, and the situation deteriorated to such an extent that, you know, dissident Republican groups were even becoming involved. And it strayed away from this gentleman's agreement Jim Mansfield Sr. would have had to a situation where Martin Byrne would say Jim Mansfield Jr. was trying to strong arm these third parties and handing over these three plots of, uh, plots of lands and assets. So it, it it all comes to a head really on June the 9th, 2015. And uh, Martin Byrne and Jim Mansfield Jr., they go to a, a warehouse at a place called, called Keatings Park. And who did they meet up with there? Yeah, so Jim Mansfield and Martin Byrne travelled to this, this warehouse. And Martin Byrne says that he only went in the pretense that Desi O'Hare would be there and they'd have a conversation. But when he arrived... O'Hare, known as the Border Fox, was there, but also present was Wacker Duffy, Declan Duffy, who's also a, a well-known distant Republican. And Martin Byrne would have said in his evidence before the Special Criminal Court that he was surprised Duffy was there, that he saw no real need for him. And he was effectively informed by these two men that his services were no longer required by the Mansfield family and that he would have to evict the property. And Martin Byrne says that Mansfield was informed um, his job was done here, he could leave. And five of the men were then called out and he was effectively um, abducted, held against his will, forced new car and bundled away to his property at the Towers. Um, this is where obviously the gang wanted to evict him from. And he said as evidence that at this meeting at the warehouse, that's when it kind of clicked with him. He felt that Jim Mansfield had set him up. So fast forward a few minutes to the site of the Towers. You have a seven-man gang travelling in convoy with Martin Byrne pinned against them. They break through the security gates, they go into his house and they beat him. And unfortunately for uh, a security guard who was working at the property that day, John Roach, he also um, inadvertently became a victim of the gang and also suffered serious injuries. Um, so apart from John Roach and Martin Byrne being assaulted, he also had Mr Byrne's family, uh, his wife and son in the house at the time, who were all caught up in this. And fortunately, it was a midday assault. Neighbours were alerted to the noise and Gardy was thankfully called to bring the matter to an end. 
So, and effectively, just because an unmarked Garda car was going going by, that you know prompted the the alarm to be raised, and and we end up with with members of of, of this gang being being captured. The the names of the individuals who were involved in this, uh, as as you have mentioned, people of my generation, the name of Desi O'Hare, the Border Fox, exceptionally uh, well known. Uh, if if anything, an infamous name from from the days of the Troubles. Tell us about his background. Yeah, so Desi O'Hare is obviously one of the more well-known criminals in, I suppose, Irish Irish history. He was born in South Armagh to a family with very strong Republican links. And himself, he joined the IRA at the age of 16. Now, he became involved in shootouts with Gardaí and the RUC on both sides of the border in both jurisdictions. And essentially, his crossing back and forth between the jurisdictions gave him the name the Border Fox. Now, he left the IRA in the 1970s and joined the INLA, and he's involved in more shootouts. Um, one of these was at a, was at a RUC station in Keedy. Uh, he served some jail time for this, was released, and then became involved in more criminality. Now, I suppose the more infamous crime he's associated with, or the most infamous, is the kidnapping of Dublin dentist John O'Grady in 1987. Now, Dr. O'Grady was held for 23 days, um, a ransom was demanded. And when this was not forthcoming, Desi O'Hare chopped off his two little fingers. Now, the gang were eventually caught. Dr. O'Grady was freed. And O'Hare was jailed for 40 years in April 1988. And I suppose like many other Republican criminals at the time, he would have benefited from the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. And he was finally released from custody in 2006. Um, obviously, O'Hare became involved in criminality again. And you know, nine years later, found himself... Um, basically the ringleader of the subduction of Martin Byrne. And Declan Wacker Duffy, again, somebody who, who's, whose time in the public eye dates back to the Troubles. Um, yeah, Declan Wacker Duffy certainly would have been considered a veteran Republican uh, criminal by his early 20s. And I suppose his name was really out of the papers for various reasons in the last two or three decades. Now, in 1992, he was involved in the murder of a British Army sergeant. Now, he only pleaded guilty to this in 2010. And like O'Hare, benefited from the Good Fight Agreement and served a number of years in prison. He was also involved in various other disputes. Um, There's the infamous Ballymount bloodbath. Um, in, I suppose, an INLA row, which saw one man, Patrick Campbell, uh, killed in a machete attack. There was also other criminalities involved in, more so recently in Dublin. There was, you know, Gardy had him on the radar for involvement in a few with Fat Freddie Thompson. Of course, another notorious criminal involved in uh, drug dealing and organised crime in Dublin. So he strayed between dissident Republican activity and organised crime. And like O'Hare, found himself involved as a ringleader and, you know, central to this eviction and abduction of Martin Byrne in 2015. And Robin, the assaults at the house and the intimidation there, pretty vicious. Uh, definitely. The assaults themselves were very violent. And obviously the threats being made as well, you know, these are hardened criminals and they weren't threats to be made lightly. Now for Martin Byrne, um, he was punched several times. He suffered a burst eardrum and needed a number of stitches after as well. And for John Roach, who of course wasn't part of this at all, who just came upon it and was a victim, he suffered serious injuries. He was beaten, he suffered broken bones, he was knocked semi-unconscious and he was kicked several times on the floor and CCTV footage shows Desi O'Hare administering some kicks as well. So there were obviously very uh, serious injuries, a violent attack. And another Martin Byrne said, you know, from the dock or from the witness box of the Special Criminal Court that, you know, what happened that day, the injuries he suffered and that ordeal changed his life and the life of his family forever. And Robin, what was Jim Mansfield Jr.'s defence in this court case? 
Well, his defense was essentially that he had no hand act or part in any false imprisonment and that he had no knowledge of any planned eviction. Um, and basically that, you know, Martin Byrne could have been abducted for many other reasons and that had nothing to do with Jim Mansfield Jr. Now, as senior counsel, Bernard Condon, you know, cast doubt over Martin Byrne's character. He was, of course, a key state witness and they, I suppose, went to attack him and cast doubt over his truthfulness. Um, now, Bernard Condon said during the trial that, you know, Martin Byrne lied under oath and that he was uh, he liked a bit of grandiosity, was the way he put it. Um, one example of this was that, you know, Martin Burr would say that he was a security for the stars and that he was made himself out to be the right-hand man of Madonna, when in fact he was just a security guard in City West where celebrities happened to gather. I suppose the main point of Jim Mansfield Jr.'s defence was that, you know, there was not enough evidence beyond reasonable doubt to convict him of false imprisonment or this false imprisonment conspiracy. And ultimately, the Special Criminal Court has agreed with that assessment. So what was the, the judgment of the court today in the charges against Jim Mansfield Jr.? Well, the judgment read to two counts. Now, the first one, the most serious, was conspiring to falsely imprison Martin Byrne. And the court did find that there wasn't enough evidence proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he was involved in this. Now, they made some interesting comments in their judgment. They did say that the most likely scenario was that uh, Jim Mansfield Jr. lured Martin Byrne to this meeting for the purpose of having him falsely imprisoned. But they said that it could not be reasonably excluded that, you know, Jim Mansfield was misled by Desi O'Hare or Declan Duffy and that there may have been some other reason for this. So for that, I suppose they said there was not enough evidence beyond reasonable doubt to convict him of the conspiracy to falsely imprison. Now, the second charge related to attempting to pervert the course of justice, and this related to uh, attempting to destroy CCTV evidence from Finston House Hotel on the morning of the abduction. Now, this footage showed Jim Mansfield and Martin Byrne travelling together in an Audi A6 vehicle to that meeting at Keatings Park. It also showed uh, Desi O'Hare and Declan Duffy in a similar a coloured and shaped vehicle later that day at Finston Hotel. And uh, this morning, Justice uh, Alexander Owen said that they did accept the evidence from Patrick Byrne, that he was directed by Jim Mansfield to destroy that evidence. And he was eventually found guilty on that count, the second count. And he has been remanded in custody as a result of that with sentencing to follow. Yes, so uh, prosecutor Shane Costello made an application for Jim Mansfield to be remanded in custody. Um, they said he has been convicted and as such should be remanded pending the sentencing date. Now, Jim Mansfield's defence did argue that he had so, you know, abided by all his bail conditions and should be released until that sentencing date. But um, eventually, Mr Justice Owen said that you know he has been convicted of a serious crime and would be proper procedure to remand him in custody until February 7th for sentencing. I'm Fiannon Sheehan and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.